0: Tonight, we thought we'd try something a little different. Tonight, you're going to get a triple feature. This is a joint Dharma talk. We thought it would be useful to you all to speak a little bit about um, the practice of the Brahma Viharas. The word Brahma Vihara literally means holy dwelling. The loving-kindness practice is one example of this practice of the holy dwellings of the mind. It's a practice of cultivating qualities of heart and mind which can help us in our lives. It's a very relational practice. It helps us in relationship to ourselves, to others, to our loved ones, and to the people in our lives we find challenging or difficult. So in going back into the world, we thought this would be a a useful, um, perhaps a useful talk to share with you. Um, There are four Brahma Viharas, holy dwellings of the mind. And they're usually practiced in order, so we will go in the order in which they're usually practiced. Not always, but usually. We begin with loving kindness, just as we have been doing on the retreat every afternoon, introducing this practice to you. Uh, The second of the Brahma Viharas is the quality of compassion, or karuna. In, In the Pali, it's karuna. And You may be living in Karuna. You may be noticing that the buildings are named after these four uh, qualities of, of heart. Metta, Karuna. The third quality is Mudita, or joy, taking joy in the joy that is all around us. And the fifth quality is Upeka, the quality of equanimity of heart and mind. So I will... Uh, talk a little bit about the first two qualities of metta and karuna, and Mark will speak about the quality of mudita, or joy, and Howie will talk about the quality of equanimity, or upekka. So, we can see that these are practices they're not necessarily states that we can just wait for them to arise. They they may, they do. You've probably all experienced a taste of these states in the course of your lives just by being alive. But we, we consciously create them as practices, a practice to do, So you can see in the metta practice, we we begin with the phrases, and each phrase is a statement of intention in the mind. We are planting the seeds of positive intention when we practice the Brahma Viharas. And these practices are seen as very much a uh, uh, tremendous aid in the awareness practice. They support our ability to stay present with all the experiences of meditation, whether pleasant or unpleasant. So I would like to begin in talking about these two two different flavors of love. Loving kindness and compassion are like different flavors of love. And I'd like to begin with a story, given that you're about to go back into the world. I'd like to share a story with you that was written the week after 9-11. It was written by a woman in Santa Cruz whose name is Yale Lachman. She was out camping. She was at a campground on the morning of September 11th. And here's what she says. I was up in the mountains last week. Tuesday morning, just after dawn, I crawled out of my tent and ran smack into a ranger whose job that morning was to whisper the news from New York and D.C. When he had finished, we looked at each other for a long, helpless moment. There are moments in your life when the world splits open and forces you to decide what is most important to you and what you are going to do about it. My mind ran through all the scenarios taking place back in the city. Fear and hysteria, calls for retaliation, a declaration of war, complete with nuclear warheads, biological weapons, and unthinkable devastation. Then something made me stop and look. Right in front of me, a marmot sat on a rock in the river. The real world grabbed my attention and demanded to know what I intended to do. By everything that is holy, what was being asked of me? Standing by the river, I thought to myself, I love this world so much. Everything I love is fragile and vulnerable. This river, this marmot, the fish, the rock. I don't know how to fight. All I know how to do is love this world. I scrambled around in my mind for inspiration, for an image of someone wise who had lived through a war and who could tell me who I was supposed to become in these desperate days. I was expecting a freedom fighter, maybe, someone with a gun, Instead, the person who sprang to my mind was Chiura Obata, the Japanese-American painter who fell in love with Yosemite and the High Sierra. He appeared to me looking exactly as he does in a photograph from 1942, taken at the Tanforan Detention Center. In the photograph, Obata is, cal- is calm and smiling, teaching a bunch of children to paint. Of all the things to do, there's a war on, your people have been rounded up like cattle, and there you are playing with a paintbrush. I blinked, hoping to conjure up a more martial role model this time, but Obata stubbornly remained. He sat before me as I sat on a rock in the middle of the river, watching patiently as I struggled to comprehend. Then all of a sudden, I got it. Obata wasn't teaching those kids how to paint. He was teaching them how to love. Day after day, right through the barbed wire fence, Obata showed those children how to see beauty, how to keep their hearts open. He knew that when evil and destruction arrive, we must not stop loving the world, and we must act on behalf of that enormous love. Each one of us must decide, which will it be, love or fear? If you choose love, you must sit down and ask yourself what you have been put on this earth to love and how you can let this great love grow bigger than you ever imagined. There are people who will try to tell you that love is a luxury and that life in all its miraculous beauty is less urgent right now than the need to retaliate against the forces of evil. I am here to tell you that unless we respond with love, we will certainly hand evil its great and final victory. Go out right now and plant yourself in the middle of that which you love the most. The thing within you that is most alive, then listen carefully, because as that love cracks your heart open, it will tell you exactly what this broken world needs from you. This is your holy work, and it cannot wait. So as we leave retreat and go back out into this fear-driven world, this will be one of our ongoing challenges to keep nurturing the loving heart, to keep letting go of fear-driven thinking. The trance of fear is very strong in the world right now. And I'd like to emphasize the word trance. When we are in a trance, we believe what it tells us. We lose contact with the fact that it is just a story. Fear comes with a story, have you noticed? It's sometimes a very convincing story, but a story nevertheless. It is a trance, not necessarily the truth. Advertisers manipulate through fear, and now more than ever, it seems that politicians also do. And unfortunately, it's very powerful, and we can easily get seduced. In uh, many of the portrayals of the Buddha, you will see either him sitting or standing with this mudra, and with his hand up like this. And this literally means, as a as a gesture, it means no fear. The Buddha would put his hand up like this, no fear. That means that he had nothing to hide, and he was also telling people there is nothing to fear. We could see, I think, in this time you've had on retreat, that this way of, cultivating wisdom in our lives, this way of opening the heart, does not promote fear. One of my great, uh, the people, one of the persons I look to as an exemplar of love and compassion in the world is the Dalai Lama. And he, I saw him about a year and a half ago, and he he told a story of how he makes a, a very uh, a point of consciously practicing love and friendliness, in an ongoing way to all of the people that he's with constantly. And he's with a lot of people every day. And sometimes he's with security guards who are traveling with him, or he's with, you know, people that he doesn't maybe know that well, but he says that his practice is to create an atmosphere of love and warmth and friendliness all around him, so that the people around him are not afraid, and so that he also has nothing to fear from them. I think that's a beautiful little teaching right there, something that we can all practice in our lives diminishing the fear around us. The Dalai Lama said, compassion and love are precious things in life. They are not complicated. They are simple, but they are difficult to practice. So, one way that we cultivate this quality of love and compassion for ourselves is through this practice of mindfulness itself. This practice of mindful awareness cannot be done without also bringing to it a quality of love and care for ourselves. Trungpa Rinpoche called meditation and love itself, he called love itself, the discipline of allowing space. When you give yourself to meditation, you are giving yourself space, aren't you? You're creating more space for yourself, a space to connect with yourself, with all parts of yourself, with loving attention. And this is a good understanding to take with you when you leave, so that your practice at home, one way to think of practice at home, is every day giving yourself space, some space, whether that's formally sitting on the cushion or whether that's sitting in your garden or in the park under a tree or having a a time with your child or your pet or your loved one, just making space for some kind of deeper connection to happen with yourself or with another being. In this kind of allowing of space, not rushed, not hurried, not, not, uh, you know how it is. What happens in that space? This agenda of the self kind of relaxes, and deeper currents of our being have a chance to come forth and be heard. It is a profound act of love to ourselves and to others. In the more formal practice of loving-kindness, as we've been doing in the afternoons, we use the phrases of loving-kindness, may I be safe, may I be at ease, may I be free from harm, may I learn courage, all these kinds of things that cultivate a quality in our hearts of bringing to us those qualities of being. The practice of metta is often described actually the practice of all the brahmaviharas can be likened to planting a garden planting these seeds of intention in the soil and watering them with our attention every day when we repeat the phrase it's like we're we're, we're learning to water the garden so encouraging these young seedlings to grow and to flower in us. So love is, metta is his quality of loving, loving without conditions. It's a great thing to give to ourselves. Each of these qualities has what is called a near enemy and a far enemy, meaning that the far enemy of metta, or love, is the quality of hatred or not liking, aversion. Whereas love is connecting, loving, that openness of heart. The near enemy of metta is called uh, conditional love. I love you when you make breakfast for me. Or I will love you if you, whatever, fill in the blank. It's that quality of loving when there's something in it for us. It's not yet unconditional love. So that's that quality of metta, of love. And you know, our hearts love. We can hardly stop them from loving. Have you noticed on the street, you know, somebody's a new baby? I mean, you know... Babies are magnets for, for love, you know, you just can't help yourself from loving a baby or a pet or a dog or anything that is vulnerable, that is not threatening, that is sweet. We start there and we learn how to strengthen that kind of love. We strengthen it really by just noticing it, seeing it all around us, that love is actually very present in our world. When we give it attention, it grows in us. Um, So that's the quality of, of metta. The quality of compassion is a different flavor of love. It's the quality of loving in the face of suffering. The definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. And the far enemy of compassion is considered cruelty, cruelty. The near enemy of compassion means it might look like compassion, but it's actually colored by something else. The near enemy is sometimes called um, pity or righteous anger or a kind of fear or grief. These are all forms of aversion, which can masquerade as compassion, but they're not really pure compassion. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So this is the attitude of compassion, is that of seeing the world, not through the lens of right, wrong, good, bad, winning, failing, but actually seeing the world through the lens of suffering and the end of suffering. And that's a very useful distinction to take back in our lives when we're facing uh, challenges in our lives, when we have decisions to make. What is it that leads to more suffering? What is it that leads to a lessening of suffering, a lessening of our anguish? Sharon Salzberg writes, being able to acknowledge suffering, open to it, and respond to it with tenderness of heart allows us to join with all beings and to realize that we are never alone. Compassion is that joining with. That being, not coming to somebody suffering with a sense of superiority or pity, but equal. Yes, I know, I've been there myself, may I help you. That equality of joining with another. Hildegard of Bingen called compassion awakening the heart from its ancient slumber. Awakening the heart is a journey, and sometimes the awakening of the heart is a journey into darkness and difficulty. I think the other night, Mark spoke about the dark night of the soul. That can be a heart-opening experience, although in the middle of it, it may not feel like that. Or it may be a journey of ecstasy and joy. You can read the poems of Rumi or Hafiz and feel the heart just celebrating its the life that it's living. Or it may be a very ordinary and quiet journey. Thoreau, I think of, sitting by his pond, or the life of mystics, hermits, contemplatives, or ordinary people living ordinary lives who have experiences of suddenly their heart just cracking open there was a woman on retreat here last year who described this as such a sweet, very ordinary moment. But she was here with her husband. They were both on retreat. And she told me in an interview that she... They'd been having some contention in their marriage. What else is new, you know? But they came on retreat together. And she, she was observing her husband in the dining room. And she said he was sitting at the table after his meal and just kind of sitting there... And she said, I looked at him, and I saw his hand resting on his cheek, and my heart just cracked open. You know, it's those little tender moments of seeing somebody's vulnerability, seeing the sweetness in somebody. That, too, is a form of the heart opening. Sometimes I like to use the example of, it's like right hand, left hand. Say you cut your, your right hand, cut your finger. The left hand doesn't stay over here saying, well, it's too bad for you. You're on your own over there. I can't help you out. No, it goes right to it. It goes right to help. That's the way compassion acts. It goes right there. You know, we have these now, the scientists have discovered, we have these mirror neurons in our brain. These mirror neurons are, are compassion neurons because they they see when other people are in distress and they start lighting up. They're like, wow, you know, they, they mirror what's happening. Robert Thurman, the great Buddhist scholar, gave a sermon, a, sermon, a talk one time about... Um, compassion. And he said, you know, it's like these human hands, these, these human hands are not weapons. They are not meant to kill or claw or, you know, attack. These are soft. These, these hands are made for, for touching, for healing, for inventing, for, for making, you know, nice things, helping others, holding others' hands. Massaging. (laughs) So, um, evolutionarily, we are built for compassion. On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha, there are many stories about this, but the story I like is that he was visited by all the obstructions. He was visited by anger, by fear, by lust, by craving, by jealousy, by the comparing mind. He was visited by, you know, all the things that have been attacking you here. And his, <laughs> his response was, when each one arose, he said, I know you. We are old friends you have visited me many times, and I am no longer fooled by you. I see you, anger. I see you, lust. I see you, craving. I see you, jealousy. You can't fool me. I'm not going to get involved in your story. I know you. And of course, at that, they fell away. So I'd like to close my little glimpse of compassion with, uh, okay, I'll start with just for you to think of someone you know who is suffering a lot. If you want to start practicing compassion, you begin with the thought of a person who is suffering, and let that suffering touch your heart. And maybe the phrase that you send is, may you be free of your pain and sorrow. May you be free of your pain and sorrow. There you are, you're practicing compassion. The Dalai Lama I will close with something he said. If we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would we would give it far more attention than we do. Changes in attitude never come easily. The development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly. It is not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice.
1: We
2: now a short intermission where people will be serving ice cream and candy. <laughs> <laughs> and chocolate <laughs> And chocolate
1: <laughs>
2: oh. oh, I hate to disappoint you. So I want to follow on from. Anna's beautiful talk um, to talk about another flavor or expression of the capacity of the heart. When the heart, the, when the, the heart of metta, the heart is open, and it turns towards um, joy, turn towards others' happiness, turn towards others' well-being, we experience a very sweet, beautiful quality that the Buddha called mudita, or appreciative joy. The joy that resonates and feels the joy and happiness of another. I was teaching a meta-retreat last year with Sharon. I think actually it was this year. And um, we were teaching that day on Mudita. And at the beginning of the day, Gina, uh, one of the teachers, um, announced at the end of the morning's instructions that today was a special day because today... She had just become a grandmother. And I was sitting next to her and the whole room had been practicing loving kindness for about seven days. And the whole room just sort of erupted in this beautiful wellspring of mudita, of of happiness for the joy for Gina of being a grandmother. And it was just a wonderful and I said, I said, you know, if you're not sure what mudita is, just take a look at what you're feeling right now. It was such a great example. Another example that I have that stays very strong in my memory is when I was in India, in Lucknow, studying with Punjaji, who we've all studied with, beloved teacher. And he was very masterful at helping people see to wake up to their true nature. Very gifted. And so people would, he would dialogue with people and they would, you know, daily, many people would come up with him and, Get a glimpse or a taste of their true nature, and he would just beam and laugh and smile and celebrate. And he just—it was the just see the the ecstaticness on his face when people saw the truth. And it—it it didn't matter whether that that person was the tenth person or the fiftieth person that week. It, his capacity for mudita and celebration of the joy and the happiness of others was really quite beautiful. The Buddha talked about mudita as, a, as the, um, the mind deliverance of gladness. Mind deliverance of gladness. It liberates us from negative forces in the mind. And it's useful to reflect on how mudita is a counterbalance for some of the ways we can err towards negativity. You know, we can so easily, say, sit in the dining room and each person comes in to get their food, and what are we doing? We're judging. Judging how much food they take, judging their clothes, judging the way they walk, perhaps fault finding, you know, or we go home to our family or our work and, and or with ourselves, and so easily we turn towards what's wrong, to what's problematic, towards what's deficient, towards the fault and the, and the difficulties in the situation. And so, mudita is really a radical shift, it's a turning attention towards the wholesome, towards joy, towards happiness, towards success, and really delighting in that. And so it's a balance to, sometimes people have the feeling that Buddhism is really all about suffering and doom and gloom, and the Buddha talks about suffering a lot, but as Anna Anna mentioned, he talks about suffering and the end of suffering. And he also talked about cultivating these wholesome states of mind to create balance, to create well-being, and learning how to turn the attention is a very useful and skillful thing to do. So other aspects of mudita is um, it's the it's the quality of heart and mind that's able to see the beauty and the joy, the simple joy in life. To see as you go outside and to notice the light on the trees, to notice the birdsong, to notice that we're living in a lot of beauty in a lot of... Um, exquisite nature right now. The poet Blake, who uh, William Blake, who lived uh, very much enraptured with the natural world and really lived with a lot of joy, his wife once said, oh, I miss my husband so, he is so often in paradise. <laughs> and I love that. It speaks to somebody who's really living in that quality of drawing. It's also the quality of a heart that can marvel at um, the mystery of this world, of the marvel of being alive, of taking a breath, of tasting food, of having a connection with somebody. Just to, to see the mystery of when you plant a seed and it grows into a tomato or an oak tree or a pear tree. You know, that's this quality that, that delights in life. Like the poet Mary Oliver. I think I read this poem earlier when she says, I want, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I want to have that quality of attention where I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. What would it be like to live like that? To turn your attention towards uh, everything that arises uh, as a marriage, as a connection. It's the quality of heart that sees the abundance Rather than the deficiency, the, the all the all the the bounty that we have. And the Buddha said it was one of the rarest brahmaviharas. That of all the brahmavihara qualities, it was it's the rarest uh, in the human heart. And I'll talk a little about what gets in the way of that. But first, I just want to talk, particularly as we're going back into our, our daily lives tomorrow. Places to you can begin to look to to help cultivate and nurture this quality. And one of the places that I find most easy is by uh, being around children or watching children, or being around parents watching their children. I have a lot of uh, friends right now who have um, young children, um, two, three, four, five years old, and so every time I see them, they're delighting and rejoicing that their child's learned to master this task, or learn to talk, or learn to walk, or learn to, um, how to, you know, argue. And they'll regret that later, but <laughs> <laughs> they're thinking for themselves, what a wonderful thing. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> and so it's, it's a, it's a place that I feel a lot of mood when I see the joy and the happiness of parents delighting in their children. Last year, uh, we were teaching a tr- retreat together and uh, we were giving the Donna talk, I think, and um, Molly, Harry's beautiful young daughter, uh, and and Annie, her mom, came through the door, and she couldn't contain herself. She saw her dad sitting up here, and she just ran (laughs) up to Harry, and left on his lap, and it was in the whole heart, the whole room just (laughs) melted again with Mudita. And just seeing that unbridled joy. Another place I like to look, and I know many of you are going home uh, and flying home tomorrow, airports I find a wonderful place to practice mudita, particularly if I'm around uh, the place where people come off the plane and they, they meet relatives or friends or family, and there's, a, there's so much happiness and joy, and sometimes those families may have been separated for years, decades sometimes. And just to feel... That sense of gladness, that sense of mutuality. You know, mudita is very connecting. It really dissolves a sense of separation. Another place is uh, at weddings. I've been to two weddings in the last month, and again, just feeling that joy and happiness at, at the, the union of, of two people coming together in love and uh, commitment, and you know the. The, the flavor at a wedding is often flavored by mudita. It's a sweetness and a joy and a rejoicing in, in love. When I practiced in Bodhgaya, which I did for many years, where the Buddha attained awakening, uh, it's become a major pilgrim site. And one of the things I used to love doing was I would practice in the Thai monastery, and next door was the Bhutanese temple, and people would come. There was a big Tibetan ritual at Jan- the end of January. And so there'd be thousands of Tibetan pilgrims uh, arriving, and many people... Fr- and, 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 and so being next to the Bhutanese temple, there were um, truckloads of Bhutanese people, and they would be standing in, these, in the back of these Mac trucks for three days, day and night, to get to Bodh Gaya to, um, you know, to practice and to really sort of um, um, just you know, to be it, to, to, to revel in that, in that sacredness. And the joy watching people arrive, maybe it was a joy for him being able to get off the truck after three days, I don't know. <laughs> but it was just so sweet to see, you know, it was, just, it was such a huge thing for them to, have, to arrive in Bodh Gaya and to be in the in the heart of you know the Buddhist world and um, very delightful. For me also, when I'm teaching, I it, it's the teaching is such a privilege, and one of the privileges is we get to see uh, and work with people, either uh, in interviews or in groups, and we and and day after day hear about people's discoveries and insights and openings and um, and the joy that comes from practice. It's not all we hear about, mind you, but um, it's, it's again, it's a wonderful occasion to to feel the gladness and the the celebration when that happens. For me, I spend a lot of my time out in nature, and that's one of the places that I um, feel that natural connection to joy and to appreciation. Um, And I also have the good fortune of um, taking people on wilderness retreats and taking people into wilderness areas that they may not go to ordinarily on their own. And again, to see how people unfold in the in the arms of nature and, and in the wilderness and, and to see how much joy comes from the natural world. And I, I know just even being here when people are out in the hills and the trees and how their heart opens to joy. The Dalai Lama said, if we practice mudita, we improve our chances of uh, joy and happiness by six billion to one. <laughs> if we think about all all the opportunities we have, this you know, to celebrate, to be to be happy, and to be uh, rejoicing in the happiness of others, friends, family, even in the small things that the small accomplishments and successes that we have. This is from G. K. Chesterton. You say grace before meals, and that's all right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and grace before the play, grace before I open a book, before sketching and painting and swimming and walking and playing and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. So there's a way that uh, this quality of mudita uh, turns us towards the quality of appreciation, appreciating all of the gifts we have in life, So if this is such a great place to hang out, why don't we hang out here so much? Why is it such a rare quality? The far enemy of, um, of mudita is the quality of envy, or of jealousy, of that feeling that when somebody is really happy, or really uh, successful, or both happy and successful, we have that heart contraction, that sense of fear, that sense of um, competition, of not enough. You know, when somebody says to you, you know, I've just found the dream job that I've always wanted, and it's tripled my salary, and I'm moving to Hawaii, and I also just found my soulmate, and we're moving together. And you go, ah, that's great. (laughs) Sounds great, I'm really happy for you. Inside there's just, no, that's what I want, why can't I find my soulmate mate, my job, I hate my job. And <clears throat> I had an experience of this not so long ago, a colleague and friend of mine um, who's a Dharma teacher landed this very um, somewhat prestigious and very high-paying Dharma teaching job and let me tell you, there's very, very few prestigious and, and and paying dharma teacher jobs. And so I wanted to have this like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> but it was also that sort of like, oh, really? Huh, how did you get that? <laughs> how come they didn't ask me? <laughs> so I've come to appreciate that she's really happy, and I'm really happy that she's in that job. Really? (laughs) Actually with the truth of what happened in the beginning was she had a really lousy time. The job turned out to be really difficult and it was really a struggle and I felt really guilty for having those feelings of like it should have been me. (laughs) And then the job bloomed and it was it was it was great. So we often had this idea that happiness is a limited pool you ever sense that someone's really happy over there in the corner? There's this group of people are laughing and having a really good time, and you go, "Wait a minute! If those two pe- people are happy, and she looks pretty happy too, and you know what about me? You know that we feel like it's going to run out, like there's this limited, you know, supply." Mm-hmm. And of course, the truth is the opposite. You know, the more joy there is, it's contagious. Or we get into the comparing mind. You know, we talked some about the. Comparing mine, how we did last night. We look around and we come into the room, or we go back home and people look really happy, and we go, "Wait a minute! I've been on a retreat doing all this hard work, and they actually look happier than I'm feeling right now." You know, we get into comparing who's the happiest or who's doing well. We come into the meditation hall and everyone looks really serene and really Buddha-like, and we go, "God, I look so kind of restless and fidgety, and I don't know about." You know, we, it it stops us from just oh, look at that. How beautiful that people are sitting so serenely. Sometimes we have judgments about what people what what makes people happy. So we you know, everybody has different things that, that do it for them and, and sometimes our heart gets contracted because we have some judgments or views about the source of their happiness. You know, maybe we're really um, down on people watching TV. And for some people, they have some favorite TV show that really brings them a lot of joy, and we can't quite appreciate the happiness because we think TV is kind of a bad thing. You oh, know? my family comes over to the States, and they go to Disneyland, and I have some views about Disneyland. <laughs> and when they come after visiting Disneyland, and say, oh, we had such a great time. There's Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And I go great, <laughs> I'm really happy for you. <laughs> or we just have a habit of looking, looking at people's faults, looking at people's uh, shadow. And so we, we can't fully see the success or the fullness because of the, the, the lens that we're looking at the world. And this is really a wonderful gift to take into our lives as you, as you leave retreat. You know, the heart's more open, the, the body's softer and open, relaxed. And to practice turning the attention to the success, the joy, the happiness of others, and to really let the heart open and rejoice in that. It's really a great gift that we can take into, back into our life. Another obstacle is um, the sense of feeling entitled. That we don't, if we feel entitled to a certain level of happiness or comfort or material status or whatever it is, we we don't we don't recognize the gifts that are always coming our way. Whether it's the sunlight or the rain or the food or our car or 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 material comforts at home, if there's that sense of well, I deserve this. In fact, I actually deserve better we don't actually appreciate and, and 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 feel the joy that can come from very simple things. So these obstacles, as you can probably tell, are, are very painful. When we shut down, when we're envious, when we're jealous, when we're fearful, when we're contracted, that phrase, green with envy, you know, it's not a happy place to hang out. So... Um, just a few things that are supportive to help to help you know, nurture this quality. Um, practice taking an active delight in things. Turn your attention, the Buddha said, turn your attention to the wholesome. There's no unwholesome and wholesome qualities and things in the world. Practice turning your attention to the wholesome. I remember when I was in London I first learned mindfulness practice, I would, and I was living in this very gray, run-down, concrete, depressed neighborhood, and I would practice... Turning my attention to anything that uplifted my heart, which which you know was the few trees and the birds and you know the smile on somebody's face, and it really nurtured that quality. Being around animals uh, can do that. You know, a lot of people have pets for that reason. You know, the dog and the cat is often you know there's there's such wonderful receptacles and embodiments of joy. This is from Mary Oliver. Called the storm. Now through the white orchard my little dog rumps, breaking the new snow with wild feet, running here and there, excited, hardly able to stop. He leaps, he spins until the white snow is written upon in large exuberant letters, a long sentence expressing the pleasures of the body in this world. Oh, I could not have said it better myself. (laughs) So something as simple as dogs at play. So letting go of the habit of fault finding, looking for the goodness in people feeling a sense of gratitude for what we have, the blessings, the friendships, the love. And we can use the phrases of mudita, the phrases, are, um, I delight or I rejoice in your happiness. I delight and rejoice in your success. May your happiness and success continue to grow. I delight in your happiness. May your happiness continue to grow. And imagine what the world would be like if we all did that for each other. You know what it's like when you have some great accomplishment and you tell somebody, and they go, oh, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> you know, it's it's very demoralizing. It can be, you know. So, see if we can bring a little more of this into the world. What a beautiful world it will bring. And if we can't access mudita, if we can't, if, we, if we, we, we're caught in the obstacles, then be aware of that. You know, be with that with some kindness and love. And know that the heart always has this innate capacity. It's within us. It's within you. So, that's what I have to say about mudita. <laughs> Other, than,
0: yeah.
1: So, uh, having uh, 10 minutes more um, tests the next quality in my own mind the quality, or the, the, of the four Brahma Viharas, the quality of equanimity. I'm teasing.
0: Settle in, folks.
1: Get comfortable. <laughs> I was thinking today about um, this quality of equanimity, and think of and mostly I was thinking of the misunderstandings that I used to carry about it, because essentially it means balance, um, poise, um, greatness of heart, a kind of uh, capacity to contain all the uh, all the different experiences of life. But w- some of my misunderstandings when I first started to hear about it. Uh, led me to believe that when something happens, I shouldn't react. I shouldn't, have any, I shouldn't have any feeling at all. And someone who doesn't have any feeling at all was called, oh, that person was really, that person has a lot of equanimity. And, and then I started noticing that I react to, I feel something about everything. And I continue to feel something about everything. And I, then I started to think about this last October, I was—I've uh, been um, leading a—you know—I've been leading retreats for more than twenty years, twenty almost twenty-three years, and I have accumulated over those twenty-three years an amazing amount of paper, <laughs> poetry. Huh on every twisted little piece of paper that some of these little pieces of paper I've turned over literally hundreds of times. Dharma talks every Tuesday basically for 23 years in addition to retreats and a whole archive of these things. And I was just finishing one of my Tuesday evening sitting groups in San Francisco. And running around the building, locking up the various doors that needed to be locked, along with another person who was helping me. When I came back, my bag that had all of my archives in it had been stolen. And I clearly, I don't know how any human being couldn't, and especially any sensitive human being, would react to something like that, would have some movement of the heart, not joy, <laughs> <laughs> But um, shock, grief, disbelief, wishing it wasn't true, stomach ache, everything. But at the same time, I knew that there was a, and this is not um, pride, pride, but there was a, a well of equanimity, a well of silence that pervaded even that experience that knew this is how it is. And this is the quality of equanimity. Whether I like it or not, this is how it is. Reality is the highest order. And somehow being in harmony with that, even if it's completely painful. The same thing happened to me. I, had, I hadn't really lost too many people in my life up until about 10 years ago. And then several people very near and dear died you know, very soon in, in succession. And I wretched. And then other moments felt completely like nothing had happened. Then retched more. And then felt this way, that way, good, bad, and and so many different waves of, of feeling. But what seemed underneath it was a, a kind of calm. Oh, yeah, this is what's happening now. Now is the retching time. Now is the feeling like nothing has happened time. And so it be, I've begun to see over the course of years that equanimity is that, is that quality that understands that things are as they are. They, that things are arising according to conditions that are really outside of my control. It really is that non-reactivity to our various, the various responses of our heart. So it means when our heart responds to the pleasant, that we fully are able to feel the pleasant without necessarily craving for more, without tightening up around that, just to let that the full truth of that in, to feel pain without condemning it, pushing it away. But even if you condemn it or push it away, or even if you crave and want more, to know that's also just what's happening. And then with neutral experiences, you know, I'm coming back to the pleasant and unpleasant neutral, which is what we have in our life. That is the flow of our experience. That we can experience the neutral events to actually, what did I write here? I wanted to remember this. by being really present in neutral events, so that they're not just fill-in times. There is a real presentness with neutral. This is how it is right now. It's neutral. As many people describe boredom on the retreat, and boredom is one of those things that very much shakes our, our equanimity until we've explored it, until you've opened to that feeling that we usually run from like the plague but say, oh, boredom's like this. And we've been using that expression that we learned from Ajahn Sumedho. It's the, it's the voice of equanimity. Oh, sorrow is like this. It, this is what's so right now. So equanimity, this quality of balance and openness, acknowledges it, its understanding is that none of us, anyone who is born, cannot be free of the ever-changing dharmas of life. And I'm not sure if you've heard the list of the eight worldly dharmas, but I'll share it with you and just reflect on these, that this is really our life, that everyone in life experiences pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, and fame, or being recognized, and shame that these are the vicissitudes of life. These are, the, these are a kind of encapsulation of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that spoken about in the, in the Taoist tradition. So instead of being free of these experiences, which is, would be a misunderstanding of that quality of equanimity, it's free to experience these. And trying to, and learning to find that balance that can allow all of that. And to trust in that this is the lawful unfolding of things. This is not, whatever I'm experiencing is not a mistake. It's not wrong. I shouldn't be having it. This is the voice of, of its, um, its enemy, or its far enemy, which is reactivity. In thinking about praise and blame... This we, all of us are really affected by praise and blame, and being in this role has been the most fantastic opportunity to be on that edge of the level of dependency on praise and the avoidance of, of blame because it's just not possible and in fact, in one of our one of our colleagues, I'll just share this little story and just, you can think about how this might, you can figure out a version of this to practice in your own life, but uh, one of our colleagues was required as part of his teaching growth, or his teaching uh, development, to give a three-hour Dharma talk. (laughs) And not only a three-hour Dharma talk, but a three-hour Dharma talk in, if I'm not mistaken, it was in Thai, wasn't it? Wasn't it Ajahn no. Samedo, or was that?
0: Not
1: in Thai. Ajahn. A three-hour Dharma talk to some Thai people. And slowly, as the three hours went on, people started leaving. <laughs> <laughs> by the time from, what's that? Without notes. Without notes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, <laughs> and by the time the last person was there, they were asleep and this was to develop this capacity to, to go on.
0: Let's all walk out. Or- <laughs>
1: <laughs> the funny thing is, I'm, and this is, this is how warped my sense of humor is, but I remembered a time where someone came into a Dharma talk and was in my group in the city and, and attacked me mercilessly. It was, and at the time, I, as a vulnerable person, I, I kind of crumbled in the face of this uh, person. You know, I, I spoke to them and all that, but in, inwardly I was crumbling. And, and uh, so you could say I had no equanimity. I worked with it, and that's what we, we all crumble, and we all get affected by things, and this is how we learn to have trust and confidence that we have the tools to, to meet whatever presents itself. And that's what the practice of mindfulness is all about. Moment, a moment of mindfulness really is synonymous with a moment of equanimity. It just sees things as they are. Equanimity is said to balance this quality of poise, openness, steadfastness, and often the image that's used is like a mountain that can be exposed to all the different storms and be unmoved. It balances all the other three Brahma-Biharas, the other three uh, boundless qualities of joy and compassion and love. And again, it just balances these qualities with the understanding. It balances that heartfelt compassion with the understanding that things are as they are. Without equanimity, compassion leads to its um, leads to the extreme of sorrow, to the extreme of of, um, of incapacit- being incapacitated. By so, the idea is that our hearts break. They are meant to break. They're not meant to be hard and, and defensive and protected. They're meant to break but be balanced with the understanding that, it, that, I, that my heart breaks and I, want, I care so much for the world but I can't necessarily make it the way I want it to. So no matter how much we wish f- for something, most results are really out of our control. Equanimity is also likened to the, interestingly enough, to the love that, um, and the feeling that parents feel when their children grow up and are old enough to leave. It still has all those heartfelt qualities of love and joy and compassion, but it's also that understanding, is this has to be. This is how it is. And an ultimate trust of the unfolding of, of that person's life. One of the ways that equanimity really grows is through that contemplation and direct experience of an understanding of impermanence. What really developed for the Buddha this somewhat a dispassion, uh, a capacity to not cling so much to the light, to, to um, his um, body and his mind and his experiences is he saw that that people age, he saw that people's health deteriorates, and he saw that people die. and it said that when he saw that, the three prides so pride is often a obviously our self-protective view is often a, an impediment to feeling that understanding. Yeah, this is how it is. So the pride the pride in youth, pride in health, and pride in life have to somehow be whittled away um, to be able to find that steadfast balance that understands that everything that arises, passes away and, and is able to feel, as he did, the joy, what's often been called the, the mingling of joy and equanimity, the joy of equanimity. When he sat under the Bodhi tree, saw the arrows of Mara, you know, all, everything thrown at him, as the arrows, as the, all these forces, as he said, I see you, he saw them appearing and disappearing. And, and, and when he recognized that his mind was no longer reactive to the forces that were going on in his mind and body, he fell into this great joy. And some would, it's often been described as his first taste of lokutrasuka, a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. This is what we've been emphasizing all through the retreat, this quality of equanimity. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing. What matters is that you know what's happening. This keeps growing, this heart, great heart quality of equanimity. The near enemy of equanimity, that feeling that disguises itself as equanimity, kind of looks like it, but it's not really that, is indifference, which is really a quality of cutting off, of separating, of aversion, where equanimity has that all-embracing quality, that mountain-like quality. Equanimity has the effect of, of balancing, as I mentioned, all the other different Brahma-Viharas, Equanimity allows us to wish happiness without being lost in craving uh, and attachment. It affects compassion by giving us the courage and the balance to be able to sit with things that are really painful and beings who are painful. And it balances equanim- it balances Mudita by giving us that rudder that, that protects us from falling too deeply into envy and jealousy. Also, compassion and um, mudita and love impact equanimity. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference. So it's really important that all of these four qualities are cultivated. Metta gives the equanimity impartiality, because the quality of metta is this boundless goodwill, it's, it's, and it's a slightly different quality than... The sentimental love that we have just for those who are nearest and dearest—it's its quality is has that equal wish for the well-being of all beings. So that that um, that kind of it kind of gives it that open quality. And last, joy gives gives the equanimity. It's funny, even as I talk about it, the equanimity has this kind of quiet, steady quality. The joy gives it the softness so that it doesn't become too stern. Other things that really help equanimity in our life, and I'll just share these briefly, is living a life that is non-harming. Giving that gift of fearlessness that Anna spoke about, where you act in such a way that you... That you um, both are not reverberating from the impact of your own actions, of body, speech, and mind. and you, You're actually resting at ease. And so that gives other people a sense of safety and that gift of they don't have to be afraid of you. And it allows you to then meet whoever presents themselves in your life with a little bit more balance. Also, that the sense of faith course, the sense of faith grows in our practice. Faith and confidence is often used together. That, that we can bear the unbearable. That we can work with situations. We can even feel envy. We can feel jealousy. And we can learn to work with all of these different states of mind. That it's all workable when it meets the, the light of awareness and equanimity. Developing your mind and your steadiness through continuous attention, noticing your attitude. All those things that we've been doing are very much sports for, for equanimity. And I'll just share, just to end, some of the basic phrases that you can, you can create your own. And there are so many with equanimity that I, could, I couldn't even begin to go through them all. One of them that's quite beautiful is, no matter how much I wish for things to be otherwise, and you can say this inwardly, reflect on it every day in your practice, no matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. More traditional phrases, all beings are the owners of their karma, of their actions. Their happiness or their unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. This is that balancing force for our compassion that understands that we can try all that we can in our life to help another, to respond to the sorrow in the world and the horror, but whether it turns out the way we want is beyond our will and our wish, and to continually reflect on that. Another example, may we all accept things as they are. May we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. Another one that's somewhat like the one before. I will care for you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but cannot make your choices for you. That's a big one for parents. So I'll end with a, a brief... poem from Galway Canal, whatever what is, is, is what I want, only that, but that. We'll sit for a moment. be happy and peaceful. May we know things are just as they are. May we take care of each other. May we know things are just as they are. May we find joy in our lives. May we know things are just as they are. May we be happy and peaceful. May we be free of mental suffering, physical suffering. May we all live with ease.
0: This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 25, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.